0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in China, fueling speculation his visit is paving the way for a summit with America's Donald Trump. Ukraine's recently formed Orthodox Church has split from Russia, deepening political tension between Moscow and Kiev. My guests, Isabel Hilton and James Rogers, will be discussing these and the day's other top stories, including Germany says a hard border in Ireland is unacceptable to the European Union. How will that help Britain's Theresa May get her Brexit deal through Parliament? Plus, 40 winks on the job. Why are Japan's bosses encouraging their staff to take a nap at work? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton and James Rogers. Isabel is the editor of China Dialogue and James is a lecturer in international journalism studies at City University. He's also a former BBC Moscow correspondent. So a very warm welcome to both of you. Now, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un is in China, fueling speculation his visit could be the precursor to a summit with the US president Donald Trump. Well, The two men met for the first time last year after months of threats and name-calling which ratcheted up tensions between the two countries. However, the momentum that followed their historic talks now appear to have stalled with neither side giving an inch on their stated positions. Washington wants Pyongyang to give up its nuclear weapons whilst Mr Kim has called for the lifting of sanctions against his country. So could a second summit yield a breakthrough? Or are you being unduly optimistic that opening gambit goes to you, Isabel? (laughs) Well,
1: uh, gosh, I mean, the problem with the second summit is that so much was given away in the first one that it's quite hard to see how uh, substantial progress is is going to be made because essentially uh, Donald Trump lifted the pressure. On on Kim, um, and now we're back at at a kind of um, difficult bargaining, which has been the situation for you know fifty years. So we have. Kim being asked to give up his nuclear weapons, which he won't do because he doesn't have any security guarantee. Um, So he's saying, well, all right, but it has to be a phased withdrawal, including the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which the Chinese want. That's because they want the Americans off the Korean Peninsula, which is going to alarm the South Koreans um, and please the North Koreans and the Americans are unlikely to agree to it. So here we are again. We're actually down to the real problems um, with North Korea, with all the kind of froth and fluff and shouting. Mm. Um, got rid of in the first round, I guess. Um, but the problem is that the concession that Donald Trump gave to Kim was, first of all, a face-to-face meeting with the U.S. president, which has elevated his international standing mm. no end. And secondly, he kind of blew a hole in sanctions because once he announced that you know he was in love with with um, Kim Jong-un and, and that it was all fine and he'd solved the problem, why should anyone respect sanctions. So now the Chinese and the Russians are asking for them formally to be lifted at the UN. Meanwhile, the leakage, which has rendered them uh, less effective than they might be, will continue through China. Mm.
0: But essentially, James, nothing has really changed so what is the point of this summit, apart from them um, elevating, Mr. Kim, perhaps Eve, even further extending that international profile?
2: Well, I, I think that's a risk. I mean, I think the international profile is, is a very important point because both leaders here, I mean, Donald Trump did not come into office um, having any notable expertise or background in international affairs. And this has been a very, very big policy gamble, a lot of people would say. Um, and for both leaders, uh, it has been one which has... Been very had a very high profile on the international stage, but which is also very important for domestic considerations too. It's and that's why, of course, as a lot of commentators have pointed out. Kim Jong-un got a big boost domestically from being taken seriously from, by the Americans, uh, to the extent of having a face-to-face meeting with the President. Donald Trump too, though, is saying, look, I can solve this. This is part of his sort of image as a deal-maker. But in fact, you know, as Isabel has pointed out, um, very persuasively, there are a lot of substantial issues which need a lot of behind-the-scenes work before some, before leaders can waltz along and sign a deal. And there's no sign, really, of substantial shifts on those, but For not least for the reason of what does denuclearization, the peninsula mean, and so so Mm. it's difficult and but of course you know a lot of this is done for show and if, if some substance emerges from the show then I suppose it's welcome but it's difficult to see what substantial progress can be made just at the moment.
0: In terms of when this summit is likely to take place no confirmation no date has as yet been given but given the difficulties that Mr Trump has at home Will that incentivize him perhaps to, to push for something to happen very quickly in terms of that meeting? Because we know that he's the master of smoke and mirrors. And if you can do anything to deflect attention from the paralysis or semi-paralysis of his government, plus uh, these, these these fights he's poised to have with um, a largely Democrat-led uh, House of Representatives, could we actually see this happening before the summer?
1: Well, those, those problems will certainly only pile up, I think, uh, until he gets government back to work. I'm not sure how good it would look, um, because you know the, the, the suspension of, of, of government in the United States is a pretty serious thing, and, and it's not usually left to linger. He said that he won't put government back to work until the Democrats agree to fund the war. The Democrats mm. are unlikely to do to, to agree to that, and so he's created a crisis. I think to go off on a summit to North to North Korea. Whilst there is no government at home, wouldn't be great.
0: It wouldn't be great, but you couldn't put it past him to do it because he he's <laughs> actually sort of gone in on the ticket that I'm going to upend convention.
1: Well, certainly his judgment is 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 um, is less than perfect, but I think on this in this case it would be difficult. I think that that certainly it, if government were back to work, he seems to want a summit because he does want he he wants something to announce or parade or take a picture of, and so before the summer would be would be good.
0: Mm. But then conversely, Mr. Trump's problem at home and the appearance that he he may well be on the back foot domestically, surely that is something which which Kim can use during this summit to leverage it in some way to gain concessions from the Americans, James.
2: Well, possibly. I mean, and, and which is which again, you know, raises the question as to whether Mr. Trump is actually likely to engage to this extent. He's not. I don't think um, he's likely to agree to a summit unless he's at least going to be able to say something, you know, that's mm. going to seem significant. Um, given even, the problems at home, p- he might be ill-advised to have another photo up in front of a possible sure. future holiday resort. For but, example, <laughs> <as> <laughs> Fair enough. But, I mean,
0: I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of let's assume, for example, that uh, the crisis at home with is resolved you've still got the upcoming Mueller investigation etc we don't know what Mueller has found though there's plenty of speculation Mm. about that he's also dealing with a Democratic led House of Representatives so
2: for Kim this is great surely These these are extra levers that perhaps he can pull well, potentially, but I'd say it's difficult to see what substantial concessions he can get further, and it is it is one of those problems. And I mean, I think, you know, from the rest of us who aren't exactly parties, those of us who aren't exactly parties of this, it's a, it's a sense of relief that there is talk going on, and that talk is not at the moment of whose missiles are bigger, more powerful, and who's going to strike first. At least that rhetoric has gone away. As I say, for two leaders for whom rhetoric and playing to the media is so much an important part of the way that they choose to execute their offices. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult to see what substantial progress can be made uh, and so I, I suppose in that sense that the the uh, the visit by the North Korean leader to China may begin to pave the way for that. Oh. Because I think there's, some, there's some really serious diplomacy needs to be done here and not just photo ops of two people standing on a beach again. We've done that.
0: Uh, absolutely and of course it, it's, it's, it, it, it's interesting that he's chosen China given China's symbolism as a very important ally of North Korea but conversely as well could China perhaps use that relationship with North Korea to wrest some concessions from Mr. Trump if and when this summit does actually go ahead? Well, of course, uh, at the beginning of the week, we had the next round of um, of,
1: of China trade talks, uh, China-US trade talks, which are mid-level talks at the moment. But, um, but that is uh, the big and difficult dispute. Now, China hasn't had many favours from the United States so far, but this is an issue which can hardly be done without China. And I think that you know, if I were um, Xi Jinping, I would be looking to to exert my influence in this dispute as a kind of useful counter in in the trade talks in which the U.S. certainly holds more cards than China. So China is you know the third leg
0: of this particular stool, and and not to be not to be underestimated. Mm. And 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 what about South Korea, James? Because South Korea obviously wants talks between the North and the Americans. It's it's caught in the middle. So what leverage, if any, can it exercise, not just over Kim himself, but also with the United States, given that Donald Trump does have a rather mercurial Personality.
2: Well, I, I assume that from, from where South Korea is looking on, they're just hoping the United States is going to make sure that they you know, remain solid allies on the peninsula and that any rapprochement between or any sort of relationship building between Washington and Pyongyang will not be at the expense of South Korea's security.
0: OK, then. Well, let's move on to another of the world's hotspot, this time in Eastern Europe. Now, Ukraine's recently formed Orthodox Church has been granted its independence, marking a historic split from the Russian church. Now, Moscow has reacted furiously to the move, which has deepened a split in the worldwide Orthodox Church, whilst whilst taking Ukraine's churches out of Russia's authority. Now, the drive for an independent church in Ukraine intensified in 2014. That's when Russia annexed Crimea and also backed separatists who seized Ukrainian territory in the country's east. Now, James, did Russia's annexation of Crimea make an independent Ukrainian church an inevitability? Because this is Something which has been going on for some time, so you could argue, I guess, that uh, what happened in Crimea was the accelerant.
2: I think it certainly made it more likely because I think it, after that, um, you know, Ukraine's entire post Soviet history has been a, a story to a large extent of where it's going to position itself internationally. I think perhaps the country's tragedy is that it sits between East and West and could potentially have been a very lucrative business and diplomatic bridge between them, but it hasn't turned out that way, of course. But I think we, if we look look at the way that this process has moved, particularly since the autumn when it was first agreed by um, the um, ecumenical patriarch uh, in Istanbul that Ukraine could have its own church, it has become a very, very political process. Um, the Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko, went to Istanbul for the ceremony well, over the weekend. So he it was, is
0: the Orthodox Christmas as well, isn't that's it? That's right. And
2: he was in church in Kiev yesterday, um, where this declaration was on display. The, 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 the actual text of the declaration was on display. Uh, he was in church there again talking about the significance of it and it is has been It's very much this is a way in which Ukraine particularly in its current government can break more ties with Russia ties which have lasted for centuries uh, but I think they've got a more recent significance too and it is this um, if you consider that for most of the last century both are part of the Soviet Union both were officially atheist it was very very difficult to be religious them um, the church did enjoy brief periods of tolerance during the Second World War for example when Stalin used it to try to um, martial uh, morale uh, and to, to fight Nazi Germany. But since the end of the Soviet Union, both in Russia and in Ukraine, resurgence of religion has been a very, very important part of that post-communist mm. a political identity. tool. It has been. A, 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 and so, in, in a sense, religion, perhaps in the two countries, it's very important spiritually, obviously, for those people who practice it, but it's also tremendously important politically and culturally.
0: Mm. And Isabel, Bar- ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, he is the head of the Global Orthodox Church. He signed Those documents in Turkey. I understand that you met him. So, from your knowledge of the man, surely he would have known that um, his action would be seen as political, even if he himself signed this this paper for very genuine spiritual reasons. Well, I am very interested in in this this move
1: by Bartholomew. He's actually first among equals, so he's not, you know, the undisputed, he's not like the Pope, as it were. But, you know, he holds an office which goes back to Byzantium. It's an extraordinary um, survival um, from, from the Roman Empire. But, but he, he's a very uh, constrained figure in his own right because he is the uh, patriarch of an Orthodox Christian church in Turkey, it's it's it has to be located in Constantinople, as it were, and the Turks are not terribly friendly towards it. So they insist that the office holder has to be uh, born in Turkey, and the pool from which this office can be recruited of 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 Christians, uh, Turkish-born Christians, is is rather small. He's. Uh, Chronically underfunded, also, and and he, for many years, was looking for a role. So the reason I met him was that for years he was involved in a series of of symposia which were to do uh, with the health of the Black Sea, or, or you know, they were the ecological symposia which would were organised by a very energetic. Greek lady with the support of Greek shipping uh, tycoons and we would go on these extraordinary voyages with the patriarch um, and talk about uh, ecology religion mm-hmm. and the state of uh, of health but but and the reason one of the reasons he wanted to do that was that it's not at all obvious that he has a role or the ability to kind of play a global role this has suddenly catapulted him into everyone's consciousness I think if you'd stop people on the street and say do you know about Bartholomew, then you'd have had blank looks and now, mm. you know, clearly he's he's played this important role. I think the risk for him might be that, that if the Russians are really fed up about this, they could um, ask the Turks to exert a little more pressure on him. Mm. And he's already, as I say, quite constrained.
0: And that's an interesting point because look, the Russians are furious about this because this church has now fallen out of their authority. So one lever removed. Obviously, they're not going to sit down and take this benignly. So some sort of plotting may well be going on, James. What is it? What direction could they take it?
2: Well, it may I mean, during his marathon annual newscast, conference just before uh, the end of last month, um, President Putin sort of suggested that the property disputes which he imagined would result from this move and, and presumably there will be such property disputes um, over those parts of the church in Ukraine which wish to remain loyal to Moscow and those which don't uh, who owns what part of, of church property and so on. Mr. Putin did warn during that news conference that he foresaw, he suggested it could become bloody mm. over that. He also um,
0: warned the Americans about this as well because he, I think Mr. Pompeo was, he did was indeed. In, in, he, he involved the, himself. He warned
2: Mike Pompeo off discussing this with uh, with President Poroshenko. So he, they do see it very much in political terms. I mean, I think, as I say, it, it's very important to 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 think how important this is to Russia. You know, Mr. Putin's career was. Uh, he began in the service of the atheist state. Now he's very, he's, not, he's very, very keen to observe as many Orthodox rituals as he can. Uh, it's always reported when he goes to church on the Orthodox Christmas at Easter. Last year, you may remember, he took part in the Epiphany ceremony, which involves cutting through the ice at the coldest mm. time of the Russian winter. It's sometimes sort of minus 30, but the, the faithful go uh, and, um, and, and, and into holes in the ice. And Mr. Putin was filmed doing that, was shown on national TV. So very, very, very important um, part of this. And so to say for Ukraine to say we're not part of this anymore, it, I think it's a significant snub to Russia, particularly as they seem to manage to accomplish mm. it. And, and
0: let's take that idea a little bit further, Isabel, because I guess there is the view that Russia also perceives an independent Ukrainian church as part of a much wider strategy on the part of Ukraine to build stronger links with Western organisations like, for example, NATO. And indeed, we've, we've been around that particular <laughs> roundabout and it
1: doesn't, doesn't really provoke a warm response from Russia. Um, so you know the game with the Ukraine has, has been you know how far can Ukraine go without without Russia you know really uh, responding? I, I think this is you know this particular move. It, it also gives Ukraine a, a, a more profound sense of identity. You know if if a country has its own church, its own and takes ownership of its spiritual traditions, obviously it's annoyed Russia because. <coughs> I mean, Russia sees everything in terms of power, uh, but it's not an aggressive move. It's not a move that damages anybody. Um, but you know, the the whole question of how far Ukraine can go remains a kind of absolute touchstone of of, of Russian um, Russian interest in retaining its power.
0: Mm. But I guess that from the Russian perspective, there is that that concern rather than fear that, okay, Petro Poroshenko and his friends they've been instrumental or certainly helped to push things in terms of the church so What else is next on that hit list? How much further are they prepared to go? What's the next viable target, James?
2: Well, I mean, I I think in an ideal world, there are many in Ukraine who would very happily join the European Union and NATO. I mean, Mm. the the events of the last five years have made that unforeseeable in the the next five years. If one can sort of outline a sort of Russian strategy from starting with the war in Georgia in 2008, it has been to draw a very, very, very firm red line over the further eastward expansion of NATO. And from Russia's point of view, they've very definitely succeeded in that. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, but you know there are those in ukraine who see uh I and mean, obviously this move of itself is not a pro-westward move but it's certainly an away from russia move and so in that sense it falls into the same camp um uh, but ukraine obviously still has lost you know it's lost ukraine to russia very difficult to see whatever sanctions western protests are in practice how that's going to be reversed in the near future uh, and ukrainian membership of nato is, is clearly off the cards for the time being but this is a way as mr poroshenko himself has said of coming away further from russia's influence.
0: what What I'd like to get from both of you in the time available on this subject is, look, we understand the political optics from the point of view of Vladimir Putin, but is that shared by ordinary Russians, on the streets do they also see it in in those terms or are they more likely to go towards look this is a tragedy because we have an orthodox church and now we have another schism and okay we're not quite in the same league as the great schism of the catholic church between the church in rome and well, i people think it's have been mentioned exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but i mean how how would ordinary russians see it as a, as a huge spiritual tragedy for
2: the for the orthodox church I mean, I think Russians, a lot of ordinary Russians would definitely see it as a matter for, of regret. I mean, because a lot of them, you know, do very keenly feel they are. I think a lot of people in Russia feel very sad about the state of relations with Ukraine. But they would, you know, they would also blame that on the Ukrainian government rather than on the Ukrainian people. I think a lot of Russians would make that distinction. Um, but I think, and I think, too, that they, they believe, that you know, they're, they're sort of, they're people who've got very strong ties of history. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in Russia with Ukrainian names, lots of people of, of Ukrainian descent, lots of people in Ukraine speak Russian. So I, I, think, I think people will see that this is, you know, this, this is a, a, a cause for regret. Um... Uh, And I think and clearly it's not going to to help the future relations, you know, whenever these two countries will move towards something uh, more like normal relations.
0: Mm. Yes, indeed. A, a, A subject I think that we will be returning to in the course of the year. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Isabel Hilton and James Rogers. Now, coming up next, Germany says the EU doesn't want a hard border in Ireland. What does that mean for Theresa May's bid to get her Brexit withdrawal bill through Britain's Parliament?
2: For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store, You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free, limited-edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today.
0: Still with me are Isabel Hilton and James Rogers here on Midori House. Now, Germany says it stands in, quote, full solidarity with Ireland over the Irish backstop, saying a hard border would be unacceptable to the European Union. Germany's Foreign Minister Heiko Maas made his remarks during a meeting with the Irish Deputy Prime Minister, Simon Coveney, who said that Westminster MPs planning to vote against Theresa May's withdrawal bill were guilty of, in his words wishful thinking, as the EU would not reopen Brexit negotiations. Mrs May is battling to persuade MPs to support her bill, which they will vote on this month. Question to both of you, really. Do you think that these remarks have helped or hindered... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Theresa may I suspect she wished that she had a, a, a roll of Sellotape to actually seal some lips together but it's too late now Helped or hindered?
1: yeah no doubt he uh, he meant them to be helpful because you know there is a there is a continuing fantasy not not only in the conservative party but actually in the labor party that there is a better deal that can be negotiated and that this is you know this is a poor deal this is a poor deal because leaving the Euro- European Union is a poor idea and it has a lot of difficult problems on which other people have interests and and rather firm views and this has not changed and no matter how how long these headless chickens run around in circles you know wishing it were otherwise it isn't going to change
0: Mm. I mean, it's it's fascinating because, uh, journalistically, we've managed to keep away from from, um, Brexit for the the Christmas vacation two weeks away. Here we are now. Nothing's changed. Nothing's (laughs) changed. And and, and that's the point, because nothing has changed. Because Mrs May, we know she spoke to some of her EU counterparts over Christmas for reassurances, etc. But you do have to ask yourself, what reassurances can they give her? Since last month, they said, look we've just raided the cupboard bare there's nothing else left on the shelves
2: yeah I mean I think uh, to go back to your original question Juliet you know will this help or hinder her? I think it, whatever you believe your beliefs will be reinforced by what's been said you see <laughs> the people who think that leaving the EU is a bad idea will say see look I told you it was a bad idea and the people who think that leaving it is a good idea will say see look this is uh, just out to cause trouble and I think nobody will be sort of swayed either way so but as for you know what can help Mrs May at this stage it's, it's really very difficult to see I mean one is reminded you know whether. the it's the vote in parliament having been postponed with of course you know the tacit and very strong implication being that it wouldn't have passed at that stage. Very difficult to see what has changed since then that will make it pass next week. I mean it's rather you know I was reminded of the conversation with my teenage daughter yesterday about what trousers were fashionable or not really and, <laughs> and once something gets a bad name you there's no way back. You certainly can't win that.
1: No, well, no,
2: no, nor did I try to I should add but but it's uh, it's once something gets a bad reputation nobody's going to vote for it and I think this has really got this deal has got a bad political reputation you know both neither remainers nor leavers are satisfied by it um and it's only this thought that you know there really is no alternative and that that, um the sh- at least the short term if not the medium to longer term consequences for the country will be something between bad and catastrophic that may focus minds and I suppose that's Mrs May's only hope at this stage but there's nothing to suggest that anything has changed since she didn't put this deal to parliament last month.
1: Mm. It's very hard to see what what game she's playing but it, it seems to me that as you watch this 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 chaos deepened that we might be coming to a point where the choice is crashing out or staying, you know, that mm-hmm. nothing in between yeah. is 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 deliverable. Um, and and so that at least would be a resolution. And, you know, I would prefer one side of that very strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, it, I mean, the, we, we're just going round in circles at yeah.
0: this point. Yeah. Although having said that, Simon Coveney, he, he did actually open the door very slightly because he said the Irish Republic wouldn't block attempts by the UK to extend Article 50, which would delay... The exit process, but the question is, even if Ireland is willing to be magnanimous on that, will the rest of the EU necessarily oh, follow? I think that's
1: not a problem. Yeah, I think they right. would be very happy to postpone, um, uh, uh, to suspend Article 50, um, and because nobody nobody loses. I mean, the question is, would the time bought by that, and I think it's going to have to happen anyway, mm. but would the time bought by that produce a resolution which and, two and that's years the problem, of, of because they're still have been not.
0: rehashing old territory, so you get the same result. Well, they they would, but
1: uh, but at least it would. It would mean that that the hard Brexiteers couldn't use the March 30th deadline as an excuse for saying it's all over. We're leaving now, you know, regardless of of the lorries and the you know all the mm. stuff that we're talking about. Um, so, so I. Th- personally think that's going to happen yeah. regardless.
2: because there is a strand of opinion in this country both you know in parliament and outside which does actually welcome that and the, and the, and the, a the school of thought which says well there will be short term hardship but after that oh, everything um, will go better everything will be better so it's going to be worth it for the short term and you know, it's not necessarily um a view shared to any extent by the majority of people in this country but um it, it is a view that's held, and I think there are some people who would welcome, they just want to get over the line, and then they'll they'll take it from there. So any delay, any extension of Article 50 would you know, be bad news for them. Mm.
0: OK, then, let's move on to our final subject, because Japan's workers are not getting enough sleep, and that is official. Experts claim that a lack of sleep is costing the economy $138 billion a year, and bosses are now so worried that many are taking unusual steps to address the problem. Some companies have special sleep rooms where exhausted workers can nap on couches, while others are encouraging staff to avoid doing overtime so they can get to bed at a reasonable hour. I mean, I I had to confess that I I burst out laughing when I I read read some of this. But I mean, it, it is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the incentives that are being offered, but also quite worrying in some respects that you're working people so hard that they're coming to work absolutely exhausted and then you're trying to sort of buy them off by saying, yeah, you can sleep at your desk or whatever and, oh, and by the way, here's a voucher. The more sleep you get, the more vouchers you get in exchange for the food. Well, it's yeah. when they
1: said that they were telling workers that they had to leave by 9pm and no, not don't <laughs> stay any later than that. I, I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe there is another approach. Yeah. I, I'm also intrigued by how you quantify, you know, the cost of, of sleeplessness at, at $138 billion a year. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. do
0: you do that? It's one of those really dodgy. <laughs> numbers <laughs> um, but you know lost productivity i guess if you yeah. were, i mean you're right you're right i mean how, how do they how do they do it but what what leapt out at me is that um in this country certainly we talk about striking the work-life balance it's non-existent in japan but from what from what these these findings reveal that,
1: that's true but sleeplessness is is actually rather a fashionable topic mm. um at, at the moment and and um I would have thought Japan had an almost bigger problem, given that it's got a very uh, rapidly aging population, um, over the recent research that lack of sleep can accelerate Alzheimer's, because they've got a serious (laughs) problem of of the structure of their, the age structure of their population. So what they really want is their old people to sleep more.
2: I mean, it's interesting. at this time of year, of course, I remember reading a piece of research conducted a, a few years ago, an article about it, which was saying that, um, you know, if you think uh, life is easy now, you know, medieval peasants actually slept in Europe slept a lot more than people do now because, of course, in the winter at this time of year, there's was nothing dark, to do in the, the fields. Forest, it was yeah. dark, no artificial light. You no. went to sleep. So. Yeah, circadian rhythms. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, but that, that's long gone. I mean, since since, since the industrial age, you know, we, we, we're we awake or, as somebody who's done night shifts and doesn't miss them. It's uh, it's not good. Yeah, I think it's one like of the prerequisites to being a journalist you've got to do your fair share of night shifts yes
1: you do but but actually sleep is also an an issue in in terms of decision making you may Mm. remember Thatcher boasted that she only slept for five hours at night which actually in terms of current research would make pretty much all of her judgment suspect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't possibly comment on that note. That brings us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and James Rogers, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Bill Lutie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and and Maylee Evans. And our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music coming up next. Then at 1900 hours, it's Monocle on Design. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliette Foster. Goodbye.